The following teaching is possible thanks to the friends and partners of Spirit and Truth Fellowship International. If you have a, a Bible, we're going to go to the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to start there. We'll be in chapter 2 to start out with. And this is going to be more of like a, a sermon type of teaching uh, to inspire and to get you to think a little bit. I have some illustrations and examples, and I want to talk through some concepts. And we're going to kind of chew on a section here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So we're going to pick it up here in uh, verse, verse 20. It says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, Paul here writing to his protege, his son of the faith, Timothy, uh, likely Timothy is, is in Ephesus at this time, and Paul's using a metaphor here of a house. And in, in this house, there are all these vessels. There are the cups or bowls or utensils. The, the, the word is not exactly very specific, just items. There are items in this house. And some of the items are gold or silver, and some of them are wood and clay. So he's making a distinction now in these items that are in the house. And then he further clarifies that some of the items, gold, silver, wood, or clay, that some of them are, are for honorable use, and some of them are for dishonorable use. So he's categorizing two different types of vessels. And essentially, they're good vessels and they're bad vessels. Good vessels, he likens them to these precious metals like gold or silver. And the bad vessels, he uses more uh, rudimentary materials like wood and clay. In verse 21 is the exhortation here, and it's in the form of this conditional statement. He sa uh, Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, then he will be a vessel for honorable use. And then he describes it as, then you'll be set apart as holy, you'll be useful to the master, and you'll be ready for every good work. So why is Paul using this uh, metaphor to begin with? That's, that's a great question, right? We want to know... How is, how is he applying this? Well, if we step back here a couple verses, we go to like, let's say, 14. Okay, he says, remind them of these things. So he, there's some things that he wants the church, the disciples there, he wants Timothy to remind them of these things. And he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Verse 15, everybody is maybe familiar with this. This is a pretty famous passage here. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So he's describing a situation, uh, likely in Ephesus to Timothy, that there's some problems. 
And he's warning them. He's telling them, you know, uh, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to do these certain things, like quarrel about words. And that rather they're supposed to present themselves as a worker, someone who can be approved before God. And then he identifies two people. He, he says, you know, uh, avoid irreverent babble because that leads to ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So it seems like these are examples of this type of behavior that's not good, this behavior that leads to ungodliness. And at the end, he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so Hymenaeus and Philetus, I guess they, they were saying the, this untruth. They were, they were saying the resurrection's already passed. There's no coming resurrection. Resurrection's in the past. We're, we're, we're too late. We missed it. <laughs> So, and they were shipwrecking, or they, they swerved from the truth, and they were ruining the faith of some with this false teaching of theirs. And that's what brings us into verse 20. He says, now in a great house. So now th these problems ha were happening, and he was saying, you know, don't do these things like these two individuals who are. Now in a great house, he goes into the metaphor. There are two types of vessels. The type you want to be is not like them. You don't want to be like Hymenaeus and Philetus. So there's, there are dishonorable ways of being in the house and quarreling over words, irreverent babbling, and all these things that lead to ungodliness. Paul's saying, you want to cleanse yourself from that. You want to be an honorable vessel. You want to be a vessel that is set apart, useful to the master, and ready for every good work. Now, Paul's idea here about cleansing yourself uh, from the, what is dishonorable, this isn't about the forgiveness of sins and, thing, and such. This is about removing yourself from negative and evil influences. It's sort of like distancing yourself from ungodliness. That's why he says cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable so you can be honorable. And I want us to focus here on the idea of being an honorable vessel, set apart as holy or as being sanctified and useful to the master, ready for every good work. Now, we think of being ready for every good work uh, in the sense of um, maybe having knowledge, maybe uh, being um, uh, a good, a good somebody who's, who's strong in prayer, somebody maybe who uh, hosts fellowships, uh, who maybe uh, meditates on scripture day and night, you know, all these things like those are great virtues and qualities. But there are other necessary matters that a person needs to be ready and useful for the master. Uh, becoming ready and useful is a, a process. It doesn't just automatically happen. When um, We don't just automatically transform into these useful vessels. Otherwise, there wouldn't need to be the instruction to cleanse yourself and make sure you stay away from what's, what's negative, ungodly, and harmful. You know, if we all just kind of transformed, I think that we'd, we'd be doing a lot better because I wonder what we'd be able, be able to accomplish if we kind of were all useful at the same time real quick. Sort of like we'd be like a, a powerhouse army for the Lord, you know. But being ready is a process, and there's change that needs to happen. There's growth that needs to happen. And it begins in your heart. We all probably can identify, you know, idea of having knowledge and things like that. As I said, prayer, meditating, being able to fellowship. But what I want to encourage us to think about in being ready to be used by the master is about desire. I think desire underlies all of these other aspects of study and knowledge and prayer and fasting, meditating, fellowshipping. Without desire, we wouldn't even do any of those anyway. So desire is kind of like the, the, base, the base level. I want to use an example of the idea of the process. So 
You can think of, uh, there'd be some people like Peter, you probably know, anybody else who uh, works with wood? I'm gonna use a, an example of woodworking here, an, an illustration. So Peter, would you think it a good idea to cut down a tree and then saw some logs and build a structure with green lumber? Yes, yes. So when, when you, you know, we go to the store, we want to buy fresh vegetables, you know, and gosh, fresh vegetables are so good and everything. You don't want fresh lumber. That's not the, that's not the building material you want. You have uh, the fibers are swollen. You have all the moisture. There, there's a process that needs to be done to be able to dry the wood and, and cure it so that it doesn't warp and bend. Um, green lumber uh, is, is, not, is not good. It has, it's, not, uh, it's more pliable, but after it dries, it begins to change shape. It's not ready to be used. It can be, but it's not, it's not ready at that time. You want to have dried lumber, um, and you want it to also have all the sap removed so that it doesn't ooze out and cause discolorations. You'd be surprised how difficult it is to paint over top of sap. That doesn't look good at all. Uh, trust me, I've done that. Made, made that mistake before. And um, mold can also grow on green lumber and other things if it's not dried properly. So there's a whole host of issues that come about. And this illustration is just to bring in the idea that you have an initial product and you have a final product and there's a transition period. Well, we're all kind of in a transition period. We're all kind of in a process of refinement, a process of, of being dried so that we are ready to hold the weight and be able to uh, be in place where the master needs us. Yeah, you know, we're all here and we all, we're all eager to learn, I would say, probably, because you guys are listening to me. Well, you're listening to me probably because you want to hear something. But we're all eager to learn, but are, are we all eager to work, I think, is the question. And the desire that I'm speaking about and I think we need to consider is, do we have that desire for the work that the Lord has for us? Depending upon in our minds, if we're like, yes, I want to do what the, what the Lord asks of me, versus I'm actually willing to make that sacrifice, I'm actually willing to take that step, I think it's the difference between thinking something and doing something. And so the desire to actually do something is a little different than having the mental construct in your mind that you think you'd be willing to do it. So I want us to chew on this idea. And I think it first comes down to the idea, and I'm probably preaching to myself here, is that I ask myself sometimes, am I too busy for God? Do I, do I have so much going on in my life? Or am I too impatient and want to go where I need to go and have like a one-track mind that I'm not paying attention to what's happening around me, really? I just want to go to the store, get my stuff, go home, sit down, and relax in my AC. How much room, of, how much room for God is involved in that plan? Uh, I, th I think I pretty much have him planned out of my plan. <laughs> Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the beginning of the chapter here, Paul writes, again, I charge you, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Rebu reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. I like this expression he uses here about uh, preaching the word and being ready in season and out of season. This is an idiomatic expression, meaning when it's time to do it and even when it's not time to do it. The time to harvest in season, or uh, this in season is the time to harvest when the fruit is ripe. 
and when everything, uh, weather's still good, the time not to harvest is in the wintertime when it's cold or rainy and it's inconvenient. And so the idiom is about be ready at all times. Be ready when it's good for you and be ready when it's not good for you. Meaning like if you're going to the store, it's not a good time probably because you're on a mission. You, you want to go and do something, accomplish it, and come back. But if, if we have the desire to see where is the Lord at work, how, what, what job, what task, what aspect of the kingdom can I accomplish for the Lord? I want to read a hymn to you guys here. It's a hymn, uh, it's called To Be Used by God by Audrey Mayer. And I think that's about the desire I'm, I'm speaking on is, do we have the desire to be used by God? Not just in our minds, but are we willing to be inconvenienced to be used by God? It says, I have a yearning in my heart that cannot be denied. It's a longing that has never yet been satisfied. I want the world to know the one who loves them so, like a flame burning deep inside. To be used of God to sing, to speak, to pray. To be used of God to show someone the way. I long so much to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. When I think about the shortness of my earthly years, I remember all the wasted days, the wasted tears. I long to preach the word to those who've never heard of the one who can dispel all fears. To be used of God to sing, to speak, to pray. To be used of God to show someone the way. I long so much to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. It's a chorus, it's a hymn. Yeah, it's a chorus hymn. Sorry if I didn't, if I didn't clarify that before. Oh, <laughs> no problem, yeah. There are two parts of it, though, that kind of caught my attention. In the beginning, sure, I said, I have a yearning in my heart that cannot be denied. It's a longing that has never yet been satisfied. You know, I think about just this idea of, like, this burning, this burning, you know, that this burning passion, this longing. Reminds me of, like, the prophet uh, Jeremiah, who said that um, even if uh, I will not speak his name or talk about God, that there still is his word in my bones shut up like a fire, and that he couldn't, he couldn't contain himself, and that he just, it was just bursting out of him. In the next verse, when, she writes, when I think about the shortness of my earthly years, there's a, a psalm that I, I really like. It's um, in Psalm 90. Uh, it says, teach us to number our days so that, me, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. To know that we do have a limited number of days, either before the end of this current life or the Lord returns. It's similar to uh, Psalm 39, where the psalmist writes, Show me, O Lord, my end and the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You know, Paul even writes about how that this, this life is but a vapor, a fleeting, like a, a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's so short. Our time on this planet is so short. Uh, you guys have lived a lot more life than I have, you know, but, uh, and, and you probably know how the years begin to race by. I, I, I'm thinking they're racing by right now, and I'm <laughs> like just a little over 30-something, you know. It's like, so uh, you guys can probably speak to it much better of how quick life, life goes. 
It just, it's like a ball rolling downhill, I guess, you know. But, but as, the, as the ball rolls, as time goes by, it's, it's about maximizing, redeeming the time, maximizing what we can do in this little brevity of, of, um, of the uh, whole history that there's something we can do in, in our little life here and now that can impact the kingdom, that can change the world. But it's the desire. Are, are we willing to allow ourselves to be used by God even when it's inconvenient? The passion and desire of people like the prophet Jeremiah is really inspiring. But I have to be honest, I don't think I have that type of passion. At least there are definitely some days that I don't. There are days I want to go to the store and I want to do what I want to do. I want to get my stuff. I want to go home. I want to be comfortable. I want to have, I want to have the world you know, revolve around me. I think we all have selfish tendencies like that. And, and sometimes I don't have the greatest enthusiasm about being used by God either. And I think that's part of the growing process of realizing, am, am I living with a mind toward how can I serve the kingdom when and where God shows me that he's at work? Or do I, am I wanting to be privileged and think about, well, I have everything that I need and therefore I'm content and I can go about my days and live my life knowing that, well, I believe in the Lord. I have, a, I have the assurance that I'm saved, that one day when he comes back, I will be with him. And that's good enough for me. Are we willing to let our life be bigger than just ourselves? Are we, are we willing to have the desire to say, Lord, if you ask something of me, if you call me, I'm willing to answer. I want to give you an illustration. Uh, back way before I was born... Some of you might remember this. In the 70s, uh, 1972 to be exact, NASA launched a very special satellite into outer space called the Pioneer 10. Any of you remember this? It was a very big deal. It was supposed to go to Jupiter, take pictures of Jupiter, measure some of the uh, magnetic fields, and send back information to Earth. The scientists in the 70s, this was a, this was a bold plan, big deal. Uh, there was, this was the first satellite to, to be attempting to do this. And they feared that it wasn't even going to make it past Mars. They, they thought it was, it was going to fall apart, thought the asteroids were going to destroy it. But Pioneer 10, they launched it. It goes out. It goes past Mars, keeps going. It goes to Jupiter. And it sends back the data. And everybody's like, woohoo! You know, <laughs> success. I mean, NASA's probably throwing a party. This is great. And this was in uh, November of, of 1973 way before I was born. <laughs> you are all so young, so young. <laughs> Removing foot from mouth. <laughs> well, once, once the satellite got to Jupiter, it actually just kept, it got uh, hurled into outer space. It went past Saturn, and then went past Neptune, then went past Pluto. It, it just kept going. It was sending pictures. It continued to send pictures back. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Um, Two billion miles at Uranus. Neptune, three billion miles. Pluto, four billion miles. In 97, um, 25 years after it got launched, it was six billion miles away from the sun. Still sending data back. Took about nine hours to send data back. In 2016, 
It is approximately 10 billion miles away right now, still sending data back, traveling at approximately 27,000 miles per hour. This satellite is the farthest away from us and the sun of any man, our artificial technology, man-made objects. Despite this huge distance, it does beam stuff back. Um, what is re most remarkable is that the scientists designed this satellite to only last three years. And now it's, it's like, what is that, 46 years. So 46 years later, I don't even know what year it is. <laughs> nice plug, nice plug. <laughs> but yes, American Steel actually is, is, is good, but. So it's still going, that's the point. It wasn't designed for this, but it, it keeps going. It's like the Energizer Bunny, it doesn't know when to stop. It takes 14 hours for the radio signals to reach Earth right now. And this is, this is really a marvel for the engineers as it's kept going and going. But my point being is that they had on board a small little transmitter to send this data back, driven by an 8-watt battery. If you guys understand energy units, this is like a bedroom nightlight, if that. So can you believe that? An 8-watt transmitter is sending back all this data after 46 years or something like that. I mean, it's, this blows my mind. But I think what I want to draw from this is that, you know, something so small has been accomplishing so much that they didn't need this massive, powerful unit on the satellite. They sent out this satellite with a tiny little transmitter, and it did its job, and it did more than its job, and it's continuing to impress everybody. And what I think is I think we'd be surprised with what God can do with eight watts of willingness. If we have just a small little bit of willingness to give of ourselves outside of ourselves, to sacrifice a little bit for God, he can take a little bit and go so long with it. I mean, think about some of the miracles. You have five loaves and two fishes. And, and how many people got fed? 5,000. How do you take an 8-watt transmitter and go 10 billion miles into space? It's like you take five loaves and two fish, and you feed a multitude. I mean, when Jesus talks about the, the faith of just a mustard seed, a little tiny bit, can do incredible things, likens it to moving mountains. You know, I think that we undersell a lot of times what God can do if we just are willing to say a small little, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'll, I'll do that. We don't, you don't have to be a great speaker or evangelist. Uh, Moses wasn't a good speaker, and look what he did. <laughs> you don't have to be the strongest person, best-looking person. You know, uh, David wasn't. He was actually the runt of the litter. You don't have to be the most educated or well-trained person. Look at Peter and John. They were fishermen in Galilee, which if you don't know that, that that's kind of like a backwater, backwater town fishermen, like their rural, rural area. You don't have to be any of these things. You just have to be willing to be used by the master. And I want to leave you guys with a, one of my favorite poems, which I think encapsulates the way that the master can use even the smallest little bit of willingness. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand by Mira Brooks Welch. I'm going to read this and then I'll close. It goes, 
"'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Do I hear two? Two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. So I just want to leave you with the thought of we can be ready for the master's use. We can be used by the master if we can have just eight watts of willingness to go out of our way and do what we're called to do. So let's keep our lookout for how is God at work in the world around us and how can we join him and be part of that and accomplish his will here on earth and we can see the kingdom come. So thank you all for your attention.